Angela Davis was an undergraduate at Brandeis University, and she got her BA, which pleases me immensely because it's my field too, in French literature. Having also spent a significant amount of time in Paris at the Sorbonne, receiving her certificat in modern French literature. She then spent some time at the Goethe Institute in Frankfurt and eventually became a graduate student in philosophy at UC San Diego and Humboldt University in Berlin. Before coming to the History of Consciousness Department at UCSC, she taught in philosophy, political science, humanities, women's studies, and ethnic studies at various institutes and universities in California, especially San Francisco State, where she taught for 10 years. She was also an instructor in the education program at the San Francisco County Jail. In 1984, she was a lecturer in history of consciousness, and then in 1991, she made her institutional home here as a professor in the history of consciousness department, for which we are all, I know, incredibly grateful and honored. Angela has, in her lifetime, received numerous honors and awards, from honorary citizenship in the city of Austin, Texas, which I love, <laughs> it's on your CV, <laughs> to the Human Rights Award from the Society for the Protection of Civil Rights and Human Dignity in Berlin, Germany, and in a more academic vein, delivering the Wellick Lectures at UC Irvine in 2003. She's the author of more books than I can count, with her 1988 Women, Culture, and Politics being reprinted in many countries, second only in translation and distribution to Women, Race, and Class, 1982, and Angela Davis, an Autobiography, 1974. Most recently, she's the author of Are Prisons Obsolete? in 2003, and Abolition Democracy Beyond Empire, Prisons, and Torture, 2005 after having also devoted a period of time to the study of female blues singers in her book, Blues Legacies and Black Feminism, Gertrude Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and Billie Holiday, 1988. Two books are forthcoming or have appeared. I wasn't quite sure if they were out yet. Punishment and Democracy, Essays on the Prison Industrial Complex, and Prisons and History, She's co-edited several collections and authored many articles and essays. Professor Davis is also the subject of countless biographies and has been interviewed on paper, on the radio, in film, and on television. And yet, Angela Davis is also a teacher of undergraduate and graduate students, a colleague, an excellent administrator, in more than one department here, a friend with a fantastic sense of humor and an even more fantastic sense of outrage, not to mention a fashion example of long-standing. <laughs> From the photograph in the 60s that sent a generation off to emulate that amazing fro, to the dreadlock days, to daily life in the 2000s, where her sartorial splendor continues to set trends. 
amazingly human and amazingly historical, both at once and in so many different ways. Please join me in welcoming Professor Angela Davis. I am going to offer some ideas um, about the relationship between the, the institution we call the prison and democracy. I'm a little taller than Carla, let me get this uh, together. And I wanted to begin by saying that um, recently I was going through some old family documents and I came upon a term paper that was written by my younger brother during his first year of college. Probably around 1970, 69, 70, 71. And his paper not only tried to make a case for the abolition of prisons, relying largely on the available literature then by convicts and ex-convicts, but it also argued that the process of, I think he said, revolutionary democratic transformation could not be accomplished without the participation and even leadership of prisoners. Now initially I was very shocked when I saw this, uh, but my initial surprise gave way to a, um, a troubling moment of nostalgia. I think I would call it, as I tried to ward off the feeling that those of us who um, call ourselves abolitionists today are condemned like Sisyphus to endless rehearsals of all of the compelling reasons, many of which were proposed at the moment of the prison's first historical appearance as a technology of punishment, why prisons do not work. Repetitions, rehearsals about why prisons don't work, why they are anathema to democracy, and why they should be removed from the social, the social arena. And so I want to ask the question, are we now simply repeating the arguments that achieve some measure of acceptance during the 1960s and 70s, but failed to stand up to law and order discourse that was associated with the Reagan-Bush era. Of course, um, some of you are old enough to remember, uh, the vast majority of you are not, uh, as I look around the room, uh, that after the Attica Rebellion in 1971, Prison abolition was widely acknowledged in scholarly circles, in legal circles, in popular circles, and not only in radical and young black communities, I would say. It was widely acknowledged as a legitimate topic of discussion. And so I, as I question why my younger brother's term paper seemed this strange artifact of a bygone era. I also thought about the way my own reaction recapitulates the assumption that prison abolition has no history and that it can only be envisioned either as a wild, unrealizable utopian fantasy 
or as an infinitely delayed future project. Prominent scholar Michael Tonry begins his preface to the 2004 tribute to Norval um, Mars, which is called The Future of Imprisonment, with this observation. Not so long ago, serious people thought the prison's days were numbered. The days of imprisonment as a method of mass treatment of lawbreakers, wrote Norval Morris's mentor Herman Mannheim in 1943, are largely over. And I'm continuing the quote from um, uh, Tanri. In a 1965 Feschrift for Mannheim, Morris wrote, that the prison's origins were makeshift, its operation is unsatisfactory, and its future lacks promise. And he confidently predicted that before the end of this century, the last century of course, the prison, as Mannheim and Morris knew it, would become extinct. Now, Tannery seems to be in agreement with all of those critiques proposed 60 years ago by Mannheim and then 40 years ago by Morris, but he concludes that even though the prison um, is indisputably iatrogenic, that is to say its putative cure creates even more disorders, it still has a future at least for the lifetimes of those of us who are now adults. He even goes so far as to suggest that just as imprisonment was proposed two centuries ago as a humane alternative to corporal punishment and capital punishment, it might now be conceived as a humane alternative to the possible use of psychotropic drugs to control the impulses of potential lawbreakers who might be introduced in a zombie-like state back into the free world. So his argument is that drugs, these drugs, these psychotropic drugs, would violate the autonomy of human beings even more than imprisonment. Now, Tannery doesn't exactly relegate abolitionism to the ultra-radical fringes of um, prison activism, but he seems reluctant to ask how the demise of the prison might be accelerated instead of assuming that the institution can only fall as a result of its own internal problems. So what he proposes are mandates for the proper functioning of the prison during the remainder of its life, during the remainder of our lives, at least those of us who are adult now. And in this sense, he reenacts this 200-year-old drama to which uh, Michel Foucault turned our attention of proposing the prison as the only solution to problems that have never managed to be solved, indeed they've been consistently exacerbated by the prison. Bigger and better prisons have always produced more crises, the solution for which are even better prisons, which in turn produce more crises. Now, the state of California's prison system, which as, many of, as some of you may know, is under threat of federal receivership, right? 
precisely because of such crises. And it is about to enter another period of major expansion if the governor has his, his way. Uh, and maybe I'll talk a little bit about Schwarzenegger, uh, uh, which is um, always a pleasure. Uh, <laughs> um, Schwarzenegger very recently was faced with the possibility of instituting a decarceration uh, a process, uh, particularly with respect to women. He was faced with the possibility of re releasing a substantial number of women prisoners. But instead, what he chose to propose was what is referred to as a gender responsive network of prisons for women. Um, Schwarzenegger's contribution to the 200-year-old drama has been to accentuate the historical amnesia it furthers by, for example, adding the term rehabilitation to the name of the California Department of Corrections. So now, um, some of you may know, the Department of Corrections is called the Department of um, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. But of course, now we are back to the early days of the penitentiary, the institution designed to rehabilitate. In the United States, the project of instituting imprisonment as the dominant mode of punishment was historically linked to the post-revolutionary metamorphoses of government and society during the late 1700s and early 1800s. The rise of the penitentiary was viewed simultaneously as dramatic evidence of democratization, dramatic evidence of democratization, and also as symptom of the unacknowledged gender, class, racial equalities that were embedded in the very structure of the new democracy. Imprisonment as punishment went on the one hand that the denial of liberty provided negative proof of the emergence of liberty as the social standard. The denial of liberty was, so to speak, the exception that proved the rule. And on the other hand, there were those who argued, and I'm, I'm quoting um, Adam Hirsch, that, quote, liberty was too precious a treasure to confiscate for minor or even major criminal infractions. Um, Hirsch's study of the rapid spread of the penitentiary in <laughs> post-revolutionary, uh, uh, what's happening? What's the purpose of this tablecloth anyway? <laughs> I'll just take it off, okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure there wasn't a big seal that it was concealing. You know? <laughs> Something like the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. You know, okay. Um, and so I was talking about Hirsch's study of the spread of the penitentiary um, in revolutionary, revolutionary America, 
and it points out that during the debates regarding the new punishment, there were these radicals who called for the abolition of all punishments and had this viewpoint prevailed, he argues, Americans would not have been led toward the penitentiary. But alas, the viewpoint did not prevail. And although an important element of the intellectual history of the prison is precisely the persistence of arguments for its abolition, and they've been almost always overshadowed by calls for prison reform, the prison has obstinately established itself as a permanent and hegemonic institution in U.S. democracy. Ironically, it still presents itself as both evidence of democracy, thus necessary exception, and as irreconcilable contradiction. And so the question I want to ask this afternoon is whether a deeper consideration of the relationship between imprisonment and democracy might establish a more productive framework for arguments against the hegemony of the prison and thus for prison abolition today. But before I proceed, I should perhaps um, share with you the more immediate reasons for these reflections. For the last um, nine years or so, 10 years or so, I've been working with an organization and a movement that works under the rubric critical resistance beyond the prison industrial complex. And this movement is largely responsible for the introduction of the term prison industrial complex into popular discourse. It has now, critical resistance has now embarked on a very explicit um, intensified campaign to popularize in a similar way to the way we popularize prison industrial complex, the concept of prison abolition. As a matter of fact, next um, September, the end of September, we will be holding um, a 10th anniversary conference uh, um, uh, marking the founding of critical resistance. Uh, and so I say this in order to make the point that to pose these kinds of questions that I'm um, formulating today, what is responsible for the phenomenal res resilience of carceral punishment? Why has the institution of the prison managed to attach itself to the very idea of democracy? at least in its U.S. manifestation, to what extent is imprisonment a racialization process that insinuates racial and gender and sexual inequalities into the very heart of liberal democracy? To pose these questions is also to interrogate the prospects for a viable 21st century abolition campaign. In other words, what I'm saying is that it is not enough now, and it has never been enough, simply to propose evidence of the prison's failure and to hope that these indisputable facts will initiate the prison's decline. As naturalized as it may be, the prison will definitely not die a natural death. And I think people like Tanri are waiting for that uh, to happen.
Previous campaigns for the abolition of various modes of punishment, the prison included, have, at least in this country, largely relied on the assumption that certain kinds of punishments are morally and politically incompatible with liberal democratic ideas. And I'm referring very specifically uh, to the ways in which the Eighth Amendment um, has been used. But despite this huge archive of cases relying on the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibits uh, cruel and unusual uh, punishment, along with excessive bail and fines, um, the Supreme Court has never been persuaded to abolish the death penalty. And certainly, also not even the extreme forms of incarceration, such as the indefinite, solitary confinement, sensory deprivation, um, characteristic of the most recent inventions of the or reinvention of the U.S. Uh, prison. I'm referring to the supermaximum security prison. It has been frequently observed that few constitutional guarantees of individual liberty have so often been relied on to so little avail as has the Eighth Amendment. Colin Diane, in um, um, a recent study of the Eighth Amendment called um, uh, The Story of Cruel and Unusual, she argues that the bizarre juxtaposition of legal affirmations of cruel punishments alongside their prohibition, their very explicit prohibition in the Eighth Amendment, can be traced to the history of slavery and to the ideological efforts to justify racialized subjugation within a social order based on democracy. And I'm quoting from... Um, her um, book. If the methods of punishment used in the United States today, the death penalty, prolonged solitary confinement, extreme force and psychological torture seem barbaric by our standards and by those of the rest of the so-called civilized world, this can be traced to the colonial history of the legal stigmatization and deprivation of a group considered less than human. The Supreme Court's most recent Eighth Amendment decisions, the ones underlying the torture memos, summon in new places and under new guises the genealogy of slavery and civil incapacitation. Now, Diane traces the history of the Eighth Amendment as she attempts to understand the current legal justifications for the treatment of prisoners of the U.S. global war on terror, which she links to legitimized practices within domestic prisons, which in turn are historically anchored in the practices of slavery. It's significant for my purposes to, to take note of the fact that the institution of the prison has played a pivotal role in the U.S.-initiated global war on terror, which George W. Bush um, 
and I, I won't say anything more about him because we'll run out of time, um, has frequently characterized as an ideological struggle in defense of democracy. Ideological struggle in defense of democracy. The articulation of carceral institutions with neoliberal democratic ideologies poised against the threat of terror recapitulates the early history of US democracy as it executed the pro project of extending rights and liberties to some while denying them to others, denying them most consistently to uh, black slaves. And so this raises the question, what if imprisonment is so philosophically anchored to liberal conceptions of democracy, infected, inflected and infected by racial exclusion, that we cannot unthink it, much less disestablish its institutions without reconceptualizing democracy. This, of course, requires us to pay serious attention to all of the complicated interdependencies of racism and capitalism that are responsible for what we might call the peculiar institutions of democracy in the US. Now, considerations of punishment and democracy are expected always to make an obligatory nod to Alexis de Tocqueville's research for uh, his book, um, um, democracy in America, I was waiting for somebody to say it, which was occasioned by a commission that he and his colleague Gustave de Beaumont received from the French government to study the new American penitentiary in light of its applicability to France. Now, those of you, how many of you read um, Democracy in America? Uh, okay, a few, yeah. You know, because it's supposed to be this Tocqueville um, renaissance, uh, Tocqueville revival, and I just wanted to conduct a brief survey here. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, there are a lot of explanations regarding the silence, um, this new form of democratic punishment called the penitentiary, uh, is uh, the silence regarding the penitentiary and democracy in America. And, you know, some exclamations argue that, uh, oh, Tuckville really wasn't interested in prisons, uh, uh, although he visited every major prison in the U.S. Uh, uh, he interviewed almost all of the prisons that were being held in the new Eastern State Penitentiary, which was the new, you know, the model institution. Uh, I think he interviewed all except two of the prisons who were prisoners who were incarcerated there. Um, about 10 years ago, when this um, um, Tocqueville revival started, C-SPAN uh, organized a tour, a Tocqueville tour, a school bus tour. And um, it was supposed to explore democracy in America. They retraced Tocqueville and Beaumont's trips. They stopped in the communities that the two visited. Um, and 
They conducted discussions on religion and politics, the impact and power of the press, the changing role of government, and the goal of the trip was to discover what democracy means today. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that this series coincided with a renewed public awareness of the prison crisis. Uh, and the series did include some discussions about specific prison sites visited by the two researchers, uh, Sing Sing, for example, um, Eastern State. But I wonder how this tour might have turned out had they visited as many prisons and talked to as many prisoners and wardens and guards about democracy as Tocqueville did. In a sense, the C-SPAN tour was consistent with the historical tendency to secrete the prison under the shadows of democracy. And following the example of Tocqueville, of Tocqueville's of the reception of democracy in America, the punishment of imprisonment, even though it simultaneously relied on and you might say negatively constituted individual rights and liberties, uh, this, um, uh, the penitentiary was expelled beyond the margins of democracy. In a very real sense, it was the negation, imprisonment as the negation of democracy, it was the negation that liberal democracy required as evidence of its existence. It was and remains the constitutive negation of liberal democracy. Carceral punishment, that is to say punishment that consists in the deprivations of rights and liberties only makes sense within a society that putatively respects individual rights and liberties. And so the liberal democratic subject knows she is free precisely because she is not in prison. This constitutive negation precisely demonstrates the meaning of freedom. And in this sense, it's structurally similar to slavery. I know I am free because I am not a slave. I know I am free because I am not a prisoner. I mean, how else can we explain the persisting fascination with the prison? Um, the um, concealment of its um, work and at the same time, the fascination with this institution. In the 19th century, prisons were major tourist vacation, uh, destinations. People took vacations by going to prisons. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, in 1858, 10,000 tourists flocked to Eastern State Penitentiary. And uh, I should say that historical prisons still hold this fascination for people uh, because in 2002, only um, more than 68,000 visitors walked through the cell blocks of Eastern State, which was opened as a, as a kind of um, museum or a historical site in the late 90s, I believe. 
But it's interesting that with all of the secondary literature on Tocqueville's democracy in America, there's very little attention to the fact that his intimate engagement with the American penitentiary may have influenced his analysis of democracy. And so how might we read the silences uh, in that text, including and beyond um, the speculation that some scholars have proposed that the prison uh, may well have been Tocqueville's model for despotism. But I want to go on to say that there are now more people in and out of prison during the course of a year today than there were in the entire population of the U.S. at the time of Tocqueville's visit. In 1831, there were approximately 13 million people in the country. And of course, the census, uh, uh, that would probably mean uh, that uh, indigenous people were not counted. Uh, and I, I don't know whether slaves were uh, counted in the census. We know that, that three-fifths of the slave population was counted for purposes of apportionment. Uh, um, Today, 13.5 million people spend time in jail or prison over the course of a year. Um, the figure we usually hear is, what, 2.2 million people? But that's on any given day. Uh, that's a um, census conducted on one day. That figure doesn't tell you how many people actually uh, go through a jail or a prison during the course of a year. Um, the lives of seven million people are directly supervised by prison guards, probation officers, parole officers. And of course I could continue this litany of statistics, uh, relying on the Bureau of Justice Statistics which publishes the annual prison census entitled Prisons and Jails at Mid-Year. Um, it publishes it annually. Uh, the latest census was taken on June 30th, 2006. And it highlights the fact that 4.8% of all black men were in prison or jail. 11% of black men between the ages of 25 and 34. 1.9% uh, of Hispanic men, that's the term the census use, uses, and 0.7% of white men. Now, I quote the Bureau of Justice Statistics knowing full well that the enormity of the numbers has little impact on how the public responds to the knowledge that the U.S. now holds more people behind bars, both absolutely and proportionally, than any other country in the world. But I cannot restrain myself. <laughs> And despite the abstractness of the numbers, and, and of course more than anything else, conventional ways of knowing the prison are, are based on and rely on numbers. If you don't have the numbers, you, you definitely uh, can't be considered as to have anything significant to say about the prison. Um, so so I, I use these numbers ambivalently. Uh, but I do want you to think about the quantitative impact of imprisonment on black communities. Now, I have um, referred to 
what you might call the clandestine ideological role the prison has played and continues to play in affirming individual rights and liberties in liberal democracy. Now I want to dwell for a moment on the way these rights and liberties operate within the trajectory that leads to imprisonment. What is peculiar to the United States, I, I like that word, uh, peculiar, and you, and, and you know why I'm using it, uh, um, and to US democracy is the entanglement of slavery in the historical emergence of the prison. Already during slavery, as um, Saidiya Hartman, for example, has pointed out, black people were acknowledged as individuals with legal personality only through their culpability. You know, that is to say, you know, slaves were considered property, but property cannot be found guilty of a crime. And so there had to be this acknowledgement of some um, element of legal personality. And so the legal trajectory that concludes with the prison sentence recognizes the individual as a juridical subject with a range of rights, and we all know what those rights are, to confront one's accuser, to due process, to a trial by jury of one peers, one's peers, etc. Therefore, the prisoner, and of course, in the current prison population, there are more black people than white. There's a significant number of Latinos in California. The majority of prisoners are, are Latinos. Uh, um, the prisoner experiences his or her rights and liberties precisely through the process of their denial. Precisely through the process of their denial. And of course, even within the confines of the prisons, rights, such rights are supposed to be, some rights are supposed to be respected. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to sit in on a um, really interesting classification hearing at a maximum security uh, prison uh, in California down at uh, Calipatria. And the hearing was to decide whether this prisoner was going to be classified as a level four inmate um, to be housed in a um, what was what's called a 180-degree uh, facility. 180-degree facility is about the angle of vision from the guard tower, uh, or whether he would be tra uh, classified as a level three inmate to be housed in a 270-degree facility. He wanted to be housed in a 270-degree facility because there's a little bit more flexibility because some of the cells are actually behind the actual vision of the guard from the guard tower. And you know, a lot of you are familiar with the Panopticon um, setup. But the point that I want to make is that the administration was so careful to follow due process and it insisted that this prisoner was receiving due process and um, could not be indiscriminately classified. As a matter of fact, there's a whole range of numbers for classification, and the, the numbers uh, um, determine where the prisoner is going to be housed, in 270 degree, or 180 degree, at level three, or level two, or whatever. It goes on infinitely. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that from its advent, the prison has been, the prison as punishment, and 
have to distinguish between the use of the prison to hold people prior to punishment or the use of the prison uh, as a um, technology of, of, of deprivation of rights and liberties. The prison has been a quintessentially democratic institution a quintessentially democratic institution. It demonstrates through the process of negation the centrality of individual rights and liberties. Civil life is negated and the prisoner is relegated to the status of civil death. Following Claude Meyassou and Orlando Patterson, um, um, Joan Diane and Colin Joan Diane and other scholars have compared the social death of slavery to the civil death of imprisonment, particularly given the landmark uh, legal case in 1871, Ruffing v. Commonwealth, which declared the prisoner to be a slave of the state. A convicted felon has, as a consequence of his crime, not only forfeited his liberty, but all his personal rights except those which the law and its humanity accords to him. He is, for the time being, a slave of the state. He is civiliter mortus. And his estate, if he has any, is administered like that of a dead man. Although prisoner state of civil death has now mutated so that they're no longer um, completely the living dead, as Diane characterized them, that is to say their residual rights have been slightly augmented, still there remains a range of deprivations that situate the prisoner, indeed also the ex-prisoner, beyond the boundaries of liberal democracy. And so in the couple of minutes I have um, left, I want to look at one such deprivation, the loss of the right to vote. And what I'd like to think about the impact of felon disenfranchisement on the workings of contemporary U.S. democracy. The majority of the imprisoned population loses the franchise, loses the right to vote, either temporarily or permanently. There are only two states in which prisoners can vote, Maine and Vermont. And maybe we'll talk about uh, you know, why such states were able to retain uh, prisoner, uh, the, the franchise for prisoners. Felon disenfranchisement emerged, as some of us remember, as a key factor in the disputed 2000 uh, presidential elections. Interestingly, it was not identified as a major factor in the 2004 elections, even though none of the laws had changed. According to um, sociologists Jeff Manza and Christopher Eugen, who've um, recently published a, a book called Locked Out, Felon Disenfranchisement and Democracy, um, uh, according to their um, um, study, 5.3 million people, here I go again, you know, using these figures, hoping they'll shock you, uh, 5.3 million people have lost the right to vote, either permanently or temporarily. And among black men, the figures are even more dramatic. Almost two million black men 
or 13% of the total population of adult black men are unable to vote. And in some states, one out of every four black men is barred from voting. Now, felon disenfranchisement has a long history. As a matter of fact, it goes back in the U.S. to 1776, when the first law uh, um, permitting felon disenfranchisement was passed in Virginia. Uh, but um, it was a rare practice uh, uh, during the early era, precisely because not that many people could vote. Uh, something like 6% of the population voted. I mean, we forget uh, uh, that uh, democracy, uh, the democracy of the founding fathers, was a democracy for a tiny, tiny, tiny majority, something like 6% of people in this country had the right to vote. The, and of course, they were all white, pretty much, propertied, male. But the point that I want to make is that the historical period that witnessed a significant expansion of felon disenfranchisement laws was the post-Civil War era. In other words, after the passages of the 14th and 15th Amendments. In fact, just as the 13th Amendment, which we know as uh, having um, legally um, ended slavery, or at least that's uh, what we think, uh, uh, the 13th Amendment contained its exception, right? Except convicts, except people who will have been duly convicted of a crime. Um, the 14th Amendment also has its exception. 14th Amendment, of course, guaranteed people the equal protection. And its exception, which you'll find in Section 2, permitted states, permitted states to withdraw the right to vote, suffrage rights, from those who were engaged in, and I'm quoting from Section 2, rebellion or other crimes. Now, according to Elizabeth Hull, the Southern Constitutional Conventions that took place during the period of the radical, following the um, overthrow of radical reconstruction, I'm using W.B. Du Bois's periodization here, they developed strategies of criminalization in order to divest former slaves and their descendants of the right to vote. And I don't have time to go into this, but many southern states passed laws that linked crimes that were specifically associated with black people to disenfranchisement, while crimes associated with white people did not result in the withdrawal of the right to vote. And I'll just give you one example. Um, in, in Mississippi, there was this ironic situation that if you were convicted of murder, um, you retained your right to vote. But if you were convicted of miscegenation, you lost your right to vote. And there were a whole range of what were called petty, petty crimes that resulted in the withdrawal of the franchise, whereas the grand crimes, and, and they included then rape and murder, did not 
result in the withdrawal of the franchise. I mean, I don't really have time to develop an extended analysis of the historical development of our current practices of felony disenfranchisement. So I'll, I'll simply point to um, Manza and Yugen's findings that between 1850 and 2002, states with larger proportions of people of color in their prison populations were more likely to pass laws restricting their right to vote, which leads them to conclude, and I'm quoting, that there is a direct connection between racial politics and felon disenfranchisement. When we ask the question, they say, of how we got to the point where American practice can be so out of line with the rest of the world, the most plausible answer we can supply, they write, is that of race. Just as the U.S. has the largest incarcerated population, it is also the only um, industrialized democracy that systematically denies ex-prisoners the right to vote. And of course, in many countries, prisoners vote. In South Africa, even though South Africa has a large prison population, every prisoner has the right to vote. They're voting polls inside the prison which sounds kind of weird to um, the ears of people who've lived in the U.S. long enough uh, to accept the fact that uh, prisoners deserve to be disenfranchised. But I want to conclude by reminding us all that it can confidently be argued that the Bush presidency was precisely enabled by the relegation of a large majority black population of free individuals to the status of civil death. Most of you know the story of the Florida elections and you are aware of the fact that not only were former prisoners removed from the voting rolls, but also those who were suspected of being felons. And, you know, in some places, uh, if, if you're black, it's already assumed that you have a criminal background. So what would the world look like today? What would be the prospects of democracy if ex-prisoners had been able to vote in the 2000 elections? As I reflect back on the meaning of my baby brother's college term paper in which he predicted that democratic transformation would have to involve the participation of prisoners, it begins to shed its anachronistic aura. Congressman John Conyers has pointed out that the fact that 600,000 ex-felons were denied participation in the elections in the state of Florida alone may have literally changed the history of this nation. If former prisoners, indeed if existing prisoners, had been able to vote in the 2000 elections, this may not have led to revolutionary transformation, but it certainly would have been a victory for democracy. And in complicated ways that I can only gesture toward now, perhaps also for the prospects of prison abolition. Thank you.
I couldn't help but uh, think about some of what you've written uh, when I saw the New York Times on Sunday and uh, the front page article, at least in the online version, talked about the difficulties of prisoners who've been released thanks to DNA testing, who've been exonerated completely under this system of justice, but who nonetheless are still unable to reclaim their democratic rights for all kind, in all kinds of spheres so that on top of everything else that they've been robbed of, they can't actually claim what is rightfully theirs even under this system. And I wonder if you want to say anything about the, the large argument you've been making today about uh, democracy and that afterlife of the prison, uh, even for people who are found to be not guilty. Um, yeah, um, uh, the uh, former prisoners face what Mark Mauer and others call collateral consequences of imprisonment that often um, follow people for the rest of their lives. Um, and then I think the New York Times article contained some charts that indicated uh, how much less a person is likely to make if they've spent some time in prison, um, how difficult it is likely to be in comparison to people who have not been in prison to get a job. Of course, uh, 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 I mean, it's interesting because this whole historical project of the penitentiary assumed rehabilitation. It assumed that you would go to prison, you know, you would, um, uh, reflect on yourself, you would establish a relationship to God, we didn't get to talk about the religious dimension here, and you would, uh, you would emerge, you know, after five years of solitary confinement or ten years of solitary confinement, most people actually went insane as a result of that, but the assumption was that you would emerge as a new citizen, as a renewed citizen. Um, you would be rehabilitated. Uh, and the fact is that um, this, re, this putative rehabilitation, um, which was only an idea, has been supplanted in reality by civil death, which is, uh, I talked about one aspect of civil death. And so you can say uh, that uh, uh, people who um, discover that if they, you know, that there's, how many times have you checked a box saying that you've never been convicted of a crime? How many times? I think you had to check that box when you applied to this institution, didn't you? So just try to imagine what it might mean for someone who has already, and they of course call, uh, interestingly, significantly call it, paid their debt to society. Uh, and is faced with one barrier after another. No wonder the process they call re recidivism. It's that's this weird term that criminologists have developed. But it's no wonder that there's uh, what prisoners call a revolving door, uh, because um, the the denial of these you know very necessary and basic rights and liberties are assumed. Like the person who asked me, you know, why should, why should criminals vote? Why should criminals have a job? But what is a criminal? And how many of you would be con con 
considered criminals if you had actually been caught for doing what you did. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's important that criminality is the process, is the product of a process, criminalization. And I'll, I'll conclude by pointing out that a recent study by the Justice Policy Institute uh, discovered that um, that black youth were less likely to do drugs or sell drugs than white group, than white youth. I mean, almost all of us here probably assume that there's just you know more drug use and. You know, black communities are poor and people do more drugs. But they, they, they discovered that um, black youth did less marijuana and sold less marijuana. They did less crack and sold less crack. The only similarity, the only um, situation in which there was basically um, equal equality was heroin. Black and white youth did heroin about. But the ideological representation of young black people, especially young black men, as you know, drug addicts involved in the drug tra traffic is so powerful that it creates this moral panic that even those who have never been in prison have to contend with this civil death, with these collateral consequences. Uh, uh, another study was done, uh, I think Mark Maurer uh, references this, on, um, on um, black and white people, and, uh, and unfortunately it's the, these studies were basically black, white, they weren't, they didn't include, you know, Asian Americans, they didn't include Native Americans, Latinos. But the study discovered that um, in terms of people who got called back for job interviews, um, people who r represented themselves as having gone back, ha as having gone to prison, uh, of course, didn't get called back at a very high rate at all. Um, so you had, you know, white people who represented themselves as having been in prison got called back at a rate that was higher than black people who represented themselves as having gone to prison, but black people who represented themselves as having never been to prison got called back at the same rate as white people who represented themselves as having gone to prison. So it's like, it's an always already situation. Uh, so it's not only about those who were caught up in that web. We're talking about reverberations uh, uh, throughout the society. So thank you very much for your question, and I want to thank the Cowell students. Uh, I didn't actually, I was wondering who you were, uh, and I actually did not know, and, but I do remember a couple of uh, weeks ago talking to a few students uh, uh, who were in the class. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for coming, and I thank everybody for your attention. Thank you very much, Angela.